Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Have you ever been misunderstood? Are you misunderstood? Is there anyone who understands you? When I was trying to get married, that was the number one thing that I was looking for, just someone who understood me. There are people who you get along with, and then there are people who you even maybe like, but then finding that person who actually understands you, or you feel understood by. You know, someone can understand you, but you don't feel as though they understand you. <laughs> that in itself is a dilemma, right? I always think of this line from Vladimir Nabokov, the novelist, who wrote in very complex ways. And he said to some critic, please don't understand me too quickly. So I think a lot of us either feel too immediately understood, which is to say that we don't feel understood. But that search is, to use a fancy word, very existential. Because when you feel understood, you kind of feel like you exist. And I'll give you the opposite of that. One of my favorite teachings, and I, I heard it in the name of Rabbi Shalom Brat. He used to teach it. It's such a strong teaching. He said, when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, and he said, thou shalt not kill. Depending on people's spiritual levels, they heard it in different ways. The people on the lowest spiritual level heard, don't take another life. The people who were on a higher spiritual level heard, don't embarrass another person, right? Don't kill, because when you embarrass someone, especially publicly embarrassing someone, that's like killing them. But listen to this. The people on the highest spiritual level, when they heard, when they heard don't kill from God, they heard, don't ignore another person. Because when you ignore another person, it's like you're, you're denying their existence, which is a form of killing them. It's a form of death. So now I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that when you actually find someone who understands you, it's like you, it's like you are coming alive. It's like someone is giving life to you. One of the greatest challenges for all of us is to find those people. And it, ideally, you'll, you'll find more than one person in life. And, and that could be a great definition of what a friend is. And it's certainly, I, I think, a great definition of who an appropriate marriage spouse would be. Because if they understand you, then they can help you. And then you have to understand them too, right? So I guess that's rare to find two people who understand each other and realize that they're being understood by the other person. <laughs> like there's so many different things that have to come together. I remember someone who knew me reasonably well. I don't think he knew me that well. I don't think he understood me. <laughs> but I remember him telling me at one point when I was looking to get married, he said, you're never going to get married. He said, because you're too weird. <laughs> you know? He said, you're like involved in Hollywood and Torah, no one's going to understand you. And then thank God I found someone 
who understood me and who I understood understood me. Right? Because it's got to be both, both sides. So I want to talk about being understood. But I want to zero in on what I think is an interesting phenomena about human relations, which is that one person can say something to another person, let's say on a first date, and the other person hears that statement and is no longer interested in pursuing a relationship with that person. Okay, that's step one. Now here's the interesting part. Let's say it's a fifth date, and that person can make the exact same statement word for word, and the other person hears it entirely differently and is now sympathetic, and it's not a deal breaker at all. Now, I think that's interesting, because if you think about it in a mathematical way, in a sort of in a, in a non-human way, how could it be that the same entity in one instance destroys a relationship and in another instance doesn't destroy the relationship at all. Why would that be? And so what I would like to suggest, this is a very controversial word these days. Uh, I didn't mean to use it, but I guess it's, it's kind of funny and ironic that I'm using it in a positive way. It really depends on context. <laughs> So what is the life-saving context or the relationship-saving context that allows someone to hear the same words from the person differently? And I think that the answer is, is kind of obvious. The answer is once you know the person better and you have a, just a larger sense for the person, you hear the words differently. But I want to add one more thing. I think once you trust the person more, once you're given the opportunity to trust the person more, the words are not going to be as scary necessarily. Because you're going to be more inclined perhaps to give the person the benefit of the doubt, or you're going to understand where that statement, that issue was coming from. And perhaps you relate to it, and perhaps you have something similar going on in your own life as well. So I want to give you a, a kind of like what I think is a tragic story from the, from the Medrash about Yosef and his brothers. And I think that this is really a cautionary tale in terms of being understood or misunderstood. And... What I would like to suggest is I'm going to preempt the story by kind of giving you the, the bottom line of what I'm going to do with this story, okay? Some, some more context for the story that we're about to hear, which is that to a certain extent, a person has to take responsibility for being misunderstood. In other words... What I think most people go through life saying is, if you don't understand what I'm telling you about myself, that's your problem. But what I would like to suggest is, if you present yourself in a way where you are being misunderstood, it's actually your problem. 
And you have to take responsibility for it. And I'm going to get into this more, okay? There's something that you wouldn't necessarily relate to, say, being on a date or getting to know someone, necessarily, in, especially in terms of conversation. But I would like to introduce this idea of Morris Ion. What is Morris Ion? So Morris Ion is where a person has to, and this is Jewish law, this is halacha, where a person has to take responsibility and avoid situations for where they can be misunderstood. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm walking down Pico Boulevard, which is a very Jewish street, lots of kosher restaurants, Jewish marketplaces, shuls, things like that. And let's just say there's a McDonald's on Pico. And let's say I'm walking by McDonald's and I see a friend sitting in McDonald's. And so I go into the McDonald's, not to eat anything because I'm kosher, but I go into the McDonald's just to say hello to my friend. Now let's say there's someone across the street who knows me, say, from the Jewish community and knows me from, as someone who keeps kosher, and they say, oh look, I guess he's not kosher at all. He eats at McDonald's. So even though I'm not eating at McDonald's, I'm just going in for a completely different reason. This is an example of Morris Ion where I am inviting suspicion upon myself. And the Torah is saying that I have to take responsibility for inviting suspicion upon myself and I have to avoid those circumstances. Now, when I first learned this, I really didn't like it because my gut, very emotional instinct was, hey, person across the street who's totally misjudging me, right? This is your issue. You have a responsibility to judge me favorably. And if you are coming to this conclusion, then this is really your issue. And yet, Jewish law says it's my issue. So I thought about it some more, and I decided that what Jewish law was saying was actually much deeper than what I was saying. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because what's so interesting about the sages is that the sages know us better than we know ourselves. And I'll tell you something, in terms of my own Jewish journey, this was a big milestone for me to understand this point that I'm relating to you right now. Because I always thought I knew myself better than the sages knew me. In other words, you talk about being understood. No one understands me better than me. You're going to tell me that people who lived thousands of years ago understood me better than me? Well, these sages were really, you know, divinely inspired. And so the answer is yes. Because a lot of times we rationalize and where we forgive ourselves for things or are unaware of our actions and our inner dynamics, right? That's why we have psychologists, thank God. <laughs> My dad was a psychologist, so if you can find a good one, I'm very pro-psychology. <laughs> a, a big rabbi 
wrote in a newspaper here. And I was sort of shocked, but then I was sort of went over. He said, anyone who's a Baal Tshuva needs to see a psychologist. <laughs> and it sounds like he's insulting Baal Tshuvas. Like, you're, you, you must be crazy if you didn't grow up keeping the Torah, and now you want to keep the Torah. But, but he was saying something. He was not saying that. Obviously, he was applauding anyone who wants to grow spiritually and grow in Torah especially. I, I fall into that category. That was my background. But what he was saying was something much more profound, which is that there's so many transitions in terms of your lifestyle and your mode of thinking that you have to make as you become more Torah observant, that these transitions are not simple transitions. Like in terms of relationships with family, with friends, with work, how you see the world, just in terms of taking on certain mitzvahs that weren't the way you were living your life beforehand, this is like a hornet's nest of turmoil that you are inviting into your life. All worth it, by the way. But it's not just so simple that you just snap your fingers and now you are something else or someone else. It is a transition that hopefully even people who grew up religious are going on for the entirety of their, of their lives. Because remember, all of reality can be described in this way, as the, the interplay between the infinite and the finite. God being the infinite, us being the finite. So if God is infinite and we're finite, there is no ceiling in terms of growth that we can achieve in this world or the next world. Growth is the constant. Or if you want to put it another way, change is the constant. Like when we say Rosh Hashanah, it's, Shana means year, but it also means change, which is interesting that as we mark time, the new year is also the headquarters of change. So change is, is the constant. I remember one year by the Happy Minion, I think I liked this so much I did it for a few years, <laughs> which was that I announced on Rosh Hashanah to the community, I know it's going to happen this year, you know, and hoping to get a reaction, right? And I said, change. Because that's the only thing that's a certainty. But change doesn't have to be disruptive. Change can be blessed totally blessed. And now, seen in this context, change equals growth. So there is no ceiling on growth. And there are many stories, beautiful, beautiful stories, about tzaddikim on their deathbed who were growing to the last minute, being concerned with other people, like in their final, final moments. Like, there's one story, I don't know who it's about, but I, I love this also, which is a tzaddik who was privileged to have his last words, you know, if we can have our last words at the end of 120 on our lips, be Shema Yisrael, Shema Lekenu. It's considered a tremendous blessing, a tremendous merit that, that, that we got to leave the world that way. And they were asking this tzaddik, like, what are you thinking? These are really the final moments of his life. And he, he said, 
He said, I want to make sure it, it looks like I'm going to be able to leave this world with the word Shema Yisrael. I want to make sure that I don't say it too loud so it, so it shouldn't appear as arrogant that I had this opportunity to leave this world this way. Now, that's, a good as, that's as good as an example of growth to the last second of a person's life. So a person has to take responsibility for being misunderstood. And here's the depths of the halacha, of the Jewish law, and, and, and an example of how the sages know us better than we know ourselves. Because it deals with the reality of where people are at. And guess what? The sages are making a proclamation. People are judgmental. (laughs) And given the fact that people are judgmental, the person who sees you from across the street walking into the McDonald's is going to think you eat at McDonald's. (laughs) Now, given the fact that that's the reality, what are you going to do with the reality? Are you going to deny the reality and say it's their problem? Or are you going to take responsibility and live within the reality and say, therefore, I have to make sure that I'm not misperceived? Do you hear? And that's what I mean by saying that the sages know us better than we know ourselves. Because we can be blind to our own faults. It says in the Talmud that that the letters of the Torah were carved into the tablets. And the Hebrew word for carved is also the Hebrew word for freedom. (laughs) So if you think about it, this is a very odd juxtaposition. Because when you carve a letter into a tablet, It's not moving. It it seems to be the opposite of free. So how do you derive the concept of freedom from something being carved into a tablet? The words of the Torah. So I heard a a Rabbi Carmi explain something that I thought was so, such a great psychological insight into human beings. He said, human beings are by nature neurotic. Now what is... What is neurosis? Neurosis means, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? And you're like constantly like flipping between scenarios. You don't know like what's the right thing to do. In other words, right and wrong is a moving target, right? You want to get a bullseye, but the the target keeps on moving from one side of the room to the other side of the room. So what does the Torah do? The Torah does something extremely blessed. It makes a fixed target. It tells you this is right and this is wrong. Now, maybe you can live up to right and wrong. Maybe you can't and you're striving to. But even if you can't, you at least know what's right and what's wrong. And so the neurosis disappears because you're actually able to have a fixed course, a moral compass for how to conduct your life. And again, we won't always get it right, but at least we know what the goal is. And that's 
how the word carved and freedom go together. Because once it's carved, once it's no longer, once it's no longer a moving target, once ethics and morality are something that's fixed, now I am free from neurosis. Now I am free to sort of like go, okay, there's the target, now I'm going to do my best, whatever it is. All of us have good days and bad days. Right now I'm going to do my best to try to get to the bullseye. I was very happy when I heard this. I don't know where I learned this. But other cultures have the concept of Morisayan as well. And I'm going to tell you a Chinese proverb right now, which illustrates the principle of Morisayan. And it's the following. Don't bend over to tie your shoes in your neighbor's pumpkin patch. <laughs> so I think that the imagery is clear, but I'm going to explain it anyway. If your neighbor sees you standing in his pumpkin patch, bending over, he thinks you're going to steal one of his pumpkins. Now you're just tying your shoes, but you are inviting suspicion upon yourself. That's the idea. Let's just take it another step and talk about avoiding wrongdoing itself. And this is from the Talmud. Now, back in the day, women had laundry day. And one of the great inventions in terms of the evolution of society and civilization was the washing machine. Believe it or not, in older times, women would go down to the river and they would wash clothes. Now, sometimes they would go into the river itself and it wasn't so modest for men to be in the area. So there's a discussion between two men. One of them says, we should avoid the river. And the other one says, we should actually go by the river and not look because that will be even higher. And the Talmud calls the person who suggests that path a fool. <laughs> You might think, wow, that, that's amazing. You're going to be in a position where you can look and you don't look. Wow, you're like a holy man. But no, you're not supposed to put yourself in a situation where you can do something wrong. In other words, don't depend upon yourself to do the right thing in a morally sketchy environment. Avoid the environment. That's what the Talmud is telling us. And these are, these are very, very wise words because there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. One of the great stories, I, I told this story at a comic book convention. I was on a panel. And the question was, what is the definition of a superhero? And there were about eight people there dressed up like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. And I don't think any of them were Jewish, by the way. And I began by saying, what is a superhero? I'm going to answer that question by telling you a Hasidic story. <laughs> I don't know if anyone in that audience knew what a Hasidic story was. But here's the story that I told them, and it's one of my favorite stories. It's about the Sansa Rebbe. <clears throat> So the Sanzarebi was by his window, 
and he saw one of his Hasidim walk by and he calls him over and he says, if you found a bag of money in the middle of the road, what would you do? And the, the Hasid said, well, Rebbe, you know, it's a mitzvah to, to return a lost object and this is money and for sure I would do everything that I could to find out who lost this money and return, to, return it to them. And the Sanzer Rebbe said, fool! And he sent him away. <clears throat> and then he calls over another person walking by and he says, you know, if you saw a bag of money in the middle of the street, what would you do? And the man said, Rebbe, I, I have to tell you the truth. You know, things are a little bit tight for me right now. I would look around and if no one was there and I saw that it didn't belong to anyone, then I would take the money for myself. And the, the Rebbe said, wicked! And he sends him away. And then he calls over another person. He gives him the same example. And the, the chassid says to the Sanzer Rebbe, Rebbe, I would like to think that I would do the right thing, but I don't know until I'm there. And he said, that's the right answer. So the idea that we'll walk by the river and we won't look, it sounds kind of good. But we don't know how we're going to be in certain situations. E even if we have the best of intentions. So now let's get back to our conversation about being misunderstood. And I want to now tell you that, that, that sad story about Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef and his brothers. Many people are not so familiar with this. We've got several Parshas leading up to Yosef revealing himself, and then they all hug, and it really seems like that's the amazing end to an amazing story. And what people don't realize is tucked into the end of the next chapter is actually the conclusion of that story. Where after Yaakov Avinu, their father, leaves this world, the brothers forge a letter from their father that they give to Yosef, begging Yosef to forgive them. And it's one of the saddest things because Yosef has already forgiven them, which means all these years later, they've been living with this fear that Yosef never forgave them. Now, perhaps on a psychological level, you can say the following, that the brothers never forgave themselves, and they projected that lack of closure, that guilt onto Yosef. Perhaps that's what was going on. We, we don't really know. But the Medrash takes up this question, and the Medrash wants to know, why did the brothers think that Yosef hadn't forgiven them? Great question. And they bring the following story. An amazing story. And again, this is all under the topic of being misunderstood. Okay? It says that as the brothers were coming back, and it was this great procession down from Egypt to, or up from Egypt to, you know, the cave of the patriarchs, and Yaakov is buried, and now they're going back to Egypt. And at a certain point, Yosef gets off of his camel or his wagon, whatever it was, and he goes to the spot 
where the pit was that his brothers threw him into. And he's standing by himself, looking down into the pit. Now, can you imagine what kind of message this sent the brothers? Now, keep in mind, we've got some family history here. Because after Yaakov Avinu gets the blessing that Esav thought he was going to get, Esav tells Yaakov, or pledges, to kill Yaakov. And he says, as soon as our father's dead, I'm going to settle my score with you. So now we've got some family history context that makes this even worse. Yaakov is now in the next world. And Yosef is standing over the pit that the brothers threw him into, looking down into it. If that's not sending a message, what is? The Medrash then clarifies. What was Yosef doing? Well, believe it or not, there's a mitzvah and there's a blessing. If you look in the Art Scroll prayer book, this blessing is included in the blessings for all sorts of things, blessings over lightning and thunder, right? Blessing over seeing a rainbow. There are all sorts of blessings. Well, there's a blessing if, you, if your life was saved in a particular location, when you pass that location, or if your parents were saved in a particular location, and you return to that location, you can say this blessing. And I was there in Auschwitz two different times where Mengele Yamach Shemo, his name should be obliterated, would stand and sentence people to death or allow them to go on to the next line, right? Hard to say sentence them to life because what was he sentencing them to? You know, more time in Auschwitz, but some people survived. But we stood, we know where that location is. And I was with people whose parents or grandparents were saved from death at that spot. And I said amen to their blessing. So this is a very real thing. So the Medrash explains why was Yosef looking down into the pit? Not one iota, not one iota to send a message to his brothers that you think I forgot and now our father's not in this world anymore? Well, guess what? Your turn is coming. Chas v'shalom, God forbid, that was not going on one iota in Yosef's mind. Yosef was saying the blessing, thanking God for saving his life. Nothing could have been more the opposite of what they were thinking. And yet that message was sent, that negative message was sent because Yosef was not aware of how his actions were being understood by his family and the rest of the people there. Now, I'm going to tell you a personal story about my mother and father to show you how easy it is for people to be mis misunderstood. And you'll see, I, I hope you'll see when you hear this story, that there's no one is to blame in this. 
but how misunderstandings can take place. And there's an extra level in this story because here's a misunderstanding that's taking place where both people think that they're effectively communicating, which is another level of misunderstanding. Right? Where you don't even under, where you're not even aware that you've been misunderstood. <laughs> and I, I dare say a great percentage of our conversations with other people fall into this category, where both people leave the conversation with different ideas of what just has just been said, thinking that the other person shares their understanding. Very tragic. It's very, very tragic. My father was a psychologist, and he used to do something where, as a, a son, used to drive me crazy. But I understand that it, it's one thing that made him a very effective communicator and a very good psychologist, which is when he would get to key words in a sentence, he would use multiple words. He would say, you're tired you're frustrated, you're impatient. And I'd be like, Dad, get to the rest of the sentence. <laughs> you know? But by using multiple words, he was making sure that he would be understood. And this was a very great thing. And I'll tell you something else which is that all of us have our own private dictionary inside of our heads. And we, we, we have to understand this. And I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll explain it to you and I'll give you an example. Imagine you're from a family that was exceptionally supportive, right? And whatever you did was great. Like, you know, you spilled coffee on the table. Wow, <laughs> you really spilled that grape. You know what I mean? Like, there are families like this, believe it or not, that are like unbelievably supportive. And you never heard handed in an assignment in your life that wasn't great. So now imagine you get a job and you turn in an assignment to your boss and your boss says, it's good. And you leave the office thinking, wow, I, what a colossal failure. He said it was good. Like, good, that's, that's, that's horrible. Like me, the minimum standard for me is great. What is this good business? I must have really messed up. Maybe I'm going to get fired, right? It was only good. All right, that's fine. Now let's talk about the boss for a moment. Imagine this boss grew up in a family where you couldn't do anything right. Nothing he ever did was right. He never heard the word good in his life. So when he said it's good, he, that's from him, that's a big word. That means great. So the person leaves the boss's office, the boss feels like, wow, you know, I really positively reinforced my employee. You know, now he feels really good on the job. The employee leaves the office feeling like, I hope that I'm accepted back tomorrow. 
And that's because everyone's got their own dictionary and their own definition of keywords in their mind based on their own unique life experiences. I promise you, when you use the word God in conversation with someone else, someone is going to hear something very different from what you have in mind. I promise you. The word love, people have very different definitions of the word love. Money, happy, these are very potent words. And I promise you, everyone's got very personalized, life-based, perhaps trauma-induced definitions to all of these words. So to take for granted that you're being understood when you use any of these words is an assumption that you shouldn't make. And this is one of the areas where a person really has to take responsibility for not being misunderstood. So if you're having what you think is a meaningful conversation with someone, in other words, you want to convey something that you feel is of importance, I would make the following recommendation. After you have your conversation, ask the person, what did you hear? Or what did you understand? Or what do you think that I just said? Not in a confrontational way, but as a continuation of the conversation. Because I'm, I'm really, like I, I remember Rabbi Green once used this phrase that I, just stays with me. He said that the sages were desperate to be understood. Like I, I never, like desperate to be understood. To me, that's so evocative. So, so let the other person say back in their own words what they think you just said. And then you can have some level of assurance whether, whether you were effective in communicating your point or not. I, I, I chose those words very carefully just now. Whether you were effective in communicating your meaning. In other words, the onus, the responsibility is on you to convey your meaning, not on the other people to divine what it is that you were trying to say. You have to take responsibility for being understood. Now, with, that, with this in mind, I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier. How is it possible, and if you think about this in terms of mathematics, right, instead of people, it's more of a question, how is it possible that the same statement a person can make on a first date can be a deal breaker and a relationship ender. And yet they can say that same thing word for word on a fifth date and it's not an issue. Why would that be the case? Same words. Because the person understands you better and has more of a context later on. Believe it or not, you know, in, in there are communities where where people just go on a couple of dates, maybe sometimes even one date, and then decide whether or not to get married or not. 
And that's usually a date that's been arranged by the parents or by community members or whatever it is. And by the way, I have family in Mexico, in Mexico City. And they, they do essentially arranged marriages there where, where the families really know each other and where they really know their kids. And these kids get married at, they get engaged, maybe the girl will get engaged perhaps at 17 or 18 or something like that. And the marriage will take place at maybe 20, 21. For the, that would be the age of the boy, he'll be a little bit older. And I'm telling you, these marriages last and they work. So I have, you know, here we are in, you know, this very modern era. And I have lived with people who regularly get married by what we would call arranged marriages. And I'm telling you, the system works. If you've got people who know what they're doing, and that's what the community is like, and, and they're all very happy. Okay, so, so you have it in the Hasidic world as well, where people will just say, go out on one or two dates, and they'll spend the next 30, 40, 50 years together. How does that work? <laughs> like, we, we scratch our heads and go, wait a second, how is that even possible? And I'll give you my understanding of it. It's because they have the same plan moving forward for life. They both have an idea of the life that they want to live, and those visions overlap. So I'll give you just an example. A couple who keep Shabbos, they know what they're going to be doing every Friday night and every Saturday. And maybe every Thursday night and every Friday, preparing for Shabbos. Right? That's, that's an amazing thing. They know what they're going to be doing the first of Tishrei every single year. That's Rosh Hashanah. They know what they're going to be doing this, the month of Elul leading up to the first of Tishrei every year. We're going to be preparing for the, the new light that's coming into the world, the new plant. They know what they're going to be doing on the 10th of Tishrei. That's Yom Kippur. And Sukkot, they're going to be getting, building a sukkah and getting ready for Sukkot. And Pesach, and on and on and on and on. And every Shabbos, there is that shared vision. And if they, they have a sense of, say, what school, what type of school they want to bring their kids to, which if they're living in the same, say, Hasidic community, that's sort of a done deal anyway. So all they have to do is, and they, and they each want to get married. They each want to build a family. So they're looking for someone to do that with. So as long as there's a, a, a level of attraction between them, there has to be a level of attraction, right? A, a husband and a wife or a bride and a groom perspective have to see each other before the chuppah, according to Jewish law, to make sure that there's that baseline attraction. And then if they're committed to making each other happy, what more do you need to know? One of the interesting things that the Talmud says, I always, I always smile when I think about this, is you are, believe it or not, you do not have to show up to your own chuppah to get married. You can appoint a shaliach 
<laughs> a representative who will get married for you as long as you've seen your bride beforehand. And the Talmud then goes on to say, and I love this part, what is the definition of a bad shaliach, a bad messenger? Someone who you send to marry the bride on your behalf and marries her for himself instead. <laughs> so I guess it's not the best practice to send a messenger. <laughs> you might want to take care of that detail yourself of showing up to your own wedding. So now I want to return back to this idea of context and that statement which can be understood and I'm going to use this to give us a different perspective on the first Rashi in the Torah in a moment. Be a sort of a surprise connection that's coming. But, you know, believe it or not, in some ways, the way the Torah is structured, we're ending Sefer Breshis and we're about to begin Sefer Shmos. The way Sefer Breshis is constructed, just organizationally, contains some very good dating advice. <laughs> so, what am I talking about? Sefer Breshis is filled with stories. And you know what? On some level, God is introducing himself to us. And how does God introduce himself to us? By telling stories. In other words, if you want to if you want someone to get to know you, tell stories. Tell stories about yourself. Provide a context for them to understand who you are and what you like. One of the best advices, pieces of advice that I got on a professional level, especially working in Hollywood, is that when people meet you, they're going to want to know something about you. Like, they don't want to hear the idea right away. I'll tell you, every Hollywood, every Hollywood meeting, no, or let me put it a different way. No Hollywood meeting between two people who don't know each other begins this way. So what's your idea? <laughs> I promise you, I've been out here many years. Not one meeting I've ever taken has begun, has begun that way. They want some context. Who are you? Also, if you're a comedy writer, the assumption is you should be funny in conversation. If you're not making them laugh in conversation, they're already starting to doubt that you're going to make them laugh in terms of your writing. So, and they want to see, can you tell a story? And now, not everyone does this consciously as a test, but this is what is going on, okay? It's not just, you know, protocol. First, we have a few minutes, you know. Maybe among some blockheads, it is protocol. But among most people, they're actually trying to get to know the other person. They want to get that context. For that reason, I've taken this advice, and I've given this advice to people who are trying to break into Hollywood many times. And I think it's maybe the best advice that I've given. Um, is you should have like five or ten minutes of great stories about yourself that are prepared. And I'll give you an example. 
Have you ever noticed how when celebrities go on talk shows, they always have a great story? Is it that celebrities are the most interesting people in the entire world? I assure you that's not the answer. It's because they have rehearsed and pre-selected a story that they're going to tell before they appear in the chair next to Jimmy Fallon or whoever it is. And they've got a staff that sits with the celebrity guest and says, tell some good stories. And then the celebrity will go, oh, you're, you're not gonna believe this one. I was actually just stuck in an elevator. It was the craziest thing happened. And they'll hear the story, they'll go, great, that's a great story, tell that story. And then the host will say very effortlessly, now, I hear you don't have the best luck in the entire world. Like, are you crazy? Just the other day I got stuck in the elevator. So they will feed them a line which will then introduce their opportunity to tell the story that was prearranged. You understand? So just like they have stories prepared before they go on, before you go on a business meeting, you should have your five or 10 minutes of stories about where you're from, funny story about growing up, a funny story of how did you get out to California or New York or Israel or wherever you are, funny story about you know the, a job that you've had on the way to here. And you say to yourself, well, how do I know which story is good? Well, you have certain stories that whenever you tell them, everyone laughs. Those are the stories. <laughs> You want to tell guaranteed stories, stories that you've told over the years that always are successful. Everyone always likes them. And if you can't think of them, ask your friends, what stories do I have that are funny? And probably your friends are going to remember them. And you get together that set, and you be able to go from one to the other, whatever it is, and, and that's what it is. So... Hashem, so to speak, came up with a list of stories that say for Breshit that, you know what, are endlessly fascinating to us. These stories are so good. We have been reading them for thousands of years, every year over the course of our lives, and we never run out of interest in these stories. They're so good. They're so good. And God is warming us up as to who he is. And it's only in the middle of the second book of the Torah, after God tells us where we're from, how we created the world, what kind of people we are, how he saved us from the worst slavery, that he then says, and this is what I want from you. That's when the Torah gets given, in the middle of the second book. Now that you know who I am, now that you have an understanding of who you are and what this world is and what this world is about, this is what I want from you. Okay, now in that context, let's understand the first Rashi. Rashi asks, why is it if the Torah is a book of mitzvahs, why isn't the first verse of the Torah the first mitzvah? Because God wants us to get to know him first. That's the answer. 
But do you see how it's a question? Do you see how it's a question? Now, how do we see great dating advice from God based on that? I'm going to tell you. Because it's really hard to find a match. It's very hard. And after many years of dating, some of us are just so tired of kind of like getting to know each other and the work that it takes to get to know another person. We would like to sit down and before the, before the waiter even brings the menu, okay, how religious are you? How many kids do you want? Do you want kids? When are we moving into Israel? Are we not moving to Israel? And how much do you make? <laughs> Let's just, let's just get to it, folks. <laughs> I haven't got time. <laughs> I've done the getting to know you thing too many times. I have no patience. Let's just get to the first mitzvah right away. But that's not how God does it. <laughs> and you know what? I want to follow God on this. I want to follow God on this. God says, let's begin with stories. And if you begin with stories, this now is going to be the answer to the question that I'm raising. How is it that something that you say on the first date ends a relationship, and if you say the same thing word for word on the fifth date, it doesn't end the relationship and it doesn't seem to be that big of an issue? because of the stories that have been told, right? Now the person understands you and your words now, and your words now can be understood. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life and review us and send in any comments or suggestions I'd love to hear him.